All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and go to Revelation chapter 1 once again. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll be looking tonight at verses 9 through 11. Revelation chapter number 1, verses 9 through 11. And let's read those verses, beginning there in verse number 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Our subject this evening is Christ, the Alpha and Omega. Christ, the Alpha and Omega. Of course, the message of Revelation, and of course, what we even dealt with last week, the second coming of Christ, is, of course, a comforting thought to us. Uh, But it was especially comforting in the day in which John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, penned these words. Uh, The levels of persecution that John would have been facing and the levels of persecution that the church was enduring uh, when this letter was being penned uh, were were nothing short of horrific. Uh, The further we move away from those days, uh, much like everything else, the further away something is in the past, the more likely we are to forget uh, just how bad that event was. Uh, The persecution that the church was under uh, during this time when John was banished to this isle, this isle of Patmos, was something that is really, in many ways, uh, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to consider. But John, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, pens these 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, we read Revelation 22 for our call to worship tonight, really just as a reminder that as Jesus begins the announcement in chapter 1, I am Alpha and Omega, it's one of the last declarations of his title that we read in Revelation 22. That title again, I am Alpha and Omega. Again, if you remember, Alpha and, and Omega means the beginning and the ending, or the first and the last. So we're learning continually about who Jesus is and how we can depend upon this title, uh, Christ, the Alpha and Omega. Uh, Many believe that the book of Revelation uh, was written or penned about 95 AD. And by that time, the church of God had fallen into what could only be described as severe persecution, especially through out the Roman world and the Roman uh, leadership. Uh, the fact is that from the very beginning of time, uh, there has always been a hatred and there has always been a uh, despising of the things of God. Go all the way back to uh, the garden and the serpent's desire to deceive. Uh, go and remind ourselves and read again about Cain slaying his own brother Abel. Uh, we read about Ishmael persecuting Isaac. Uh, so the world itself 
has always been in opposition to Christ. There, has, there is this fallacy that we tend to believe that at some point in time the world was uh, peace-loving and loving towards the things of God or the things of Christ. From the very beginning of time, uh, man has been in opposition to the things of God. So, the world is opposed to Christ now. Uh, the world was opposed to Christ then. And so that's the way it has been. And that's the way it will continue to be until the Lord returns. And so today we're not witnessing some new opposition. We're not witnessing something that has not already been happening or has happened in the past. Uh, We are watching a continuation of the opposition uh, that the world has towards Christ. Now one thing needs to be clarified. Uh, It is not religion that is hated by the world. Uh, We, as a country, are a very religious nation. Uh, Nobody would disagree with that. Now, religion is not faith. Religion is not uh, saving faith. Religion can be defined as anything that becomes an object of worship. But there are many different gods in man's eyes. There are many different ways to worship. And of course, so the world is not opposed to religion. Uh, If we stood up here on Sunday morning and decided we're no longer going to be followers or preach the gospel of Christ, we're just going to be a religious organization, uh, there would be a welcoming unto us saying this is what the world needs. The world needs more religion. We need more of this religious freedom. And of course, as the world loves religion, But the world is opposed to Christ. There's no doubt about that. That's why Jesus himself said that the world's going to hate you. Uh, But remember, uh, they hate you, not first. They hate me. So what is it about Christ? What is it about Christ that people oppose? Uh, It is the offense that the cross presents. It is what the cross declares. It is what the gospel declares, that man is a sinner and that man is in need of a savior, that man's deeds are awful, that he is is depraved, he is wicked, he's the enemy of God. That's what man's opposed to. They're not opposed to religion, they're opposed to the gospel and they're certainly opposed to grace, which is really an amazing thought to be opposed to grace. They're opposed to the God of grace. They're opposed to Christ. Uh, The offense at the cross has caused, continues to cause, and is not being diminished. Uh, It is an offensive thing to the unbeliever, the idea of the cross. But God is still, remember this, God is still restraining the world to some extent. Man is not unleashing what he is fully capable of yet, which is really, uh, if we did not have hope in Christ, it would be a frightening consideration, right? But we know that there is a restraint. Um, as, as severe as persecution is, uh, it is not as severe even as it could be. But we cannot begin to imagine and think that what John was writing about is somehow different, worse, or lighter today. John says, and we'll talk about this and look at this more closely, John says, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. And tribulation is a very strong word that defines or denotes trouble. 
distress. A time of great, really what we could say, great battle. It's a conflict. It's, it's enemies. And he says, I am your brother and companion. John does not separate himself from the persecution. He says, no, I'm a companion in this. I am, I am your brother, not only spiritually, but I am your brother in this persecution. So man's persecution has not changed. Why? Because man's heart has not changed. Man's heart is essentially the same as it's always been. Now we might say today man is growing more and more harsh in his dealings with man. And uh, we're, we begin to see that are people getting more unkind? Are people getting meaner? Are they getting more violent? And of course, we, we are creatures of the present, right? What we see happening, we think this is unlike anything the world has ever seen. But yet, again, go back and look at the martyrdom of many saints throughout the ages, and we would say uh, that the violence towards Christianity, and specifically towards those who follow Christ, is similar because man's heart has not changed. But by the time the first century was growing, drawing to a close, uh, there it was a time when the, the persecution was very severe and it was very widespread. So what John is writing about the times he's writing, uh, believers at that point were looked upon as something to be despised. Uh, they were contemptible. They were vile to the world. The world looked at the Christians and looked at the people who followed Christ and said, listen, there's no worse people on the planet than these Christians. That's how the world viewed these followers of Christ. Now, really, without trying to get too far off the path, I'm just trying to give us a little bit of an understanding of uh, even what was happening here. Uh, we talk about how is Christianity hated today? Well, Christians are hated in the political realm. Christians are hated in the religious realm. Christians are hated in the social realm. And Christians are hated in the economic realm. It was the same during the Roman Empire and when Christians were subjected to this. From a political standpoint, the Roman Empire didn't hate anybody as bad as they hated Christians. Uh, the, 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 they viewed followers of Christ as being the most disloyal people they were because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as the ultimate authority. Now remember, Jesus said, give unto Caesar that which is due unto Caesar. He was not telling them, you don't have to have any, any kind of submission to them. But the Romans were mad and angry because they would not make the Caesar the preeminent one. So from a political standpoint, if you did not bow down to Caesar, uh, you were one of those who could likely have been used as a human torch and suffered great persecution. From a religious standpoint, uh, believers, Christian followers were considered to be, now get this, they were considered to be the atheist of the day because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't believe that those gods were to be worshipped, so they were called divisive. They were running contrary to the rest of the world, and because they're running contrary to the rest of the world, they were considered divisive and they were considered atheists because they refused to acknowledge uh, the Roman gods. From a social standpoint, they were not welcome there either. 
They were despised by the Roman, the higher ups, the ones who were, uh, the ones who were the, the leaders and the most respected. Uh, verses that declare in Scripture, such as Galatians three twenty eight and Colossians three eleven, that says that all believers are one in Christ. You see, the Romans were not afraid to declare that their their greatness that they were the greatest empire in the world. Uh, they were not afraid to display prejudice towards those who were not Romans. They were, they were unashamedly, hey, we're Romans and we're very proud of that. But yet, isn't it interesting that in Scripture, all sinners come to God on equal terms and that they must come under the same, the same way. They must come to God through Christ Jesus. There is no prejudice. There is no bias. There's no respecter of persons. A sinner has to come to Jesus the exact same way. He's not getting to Christ any other way except through, through the blood of Christ, through His blood, and through His merits. To find acceptance with God, it must be found through Christ. Now, that humbles a person, does it not? When you realize that my self-worth, my value, my acceptance with God does not come from any righteous works in which I do. But yet, the Romans were very proud people. The Romans were very proud of what they'd accomplished. They were very proud so that they believed we are going to rule the world. Well, what happened to the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire fell. Because of its pride, because of its radical hatred towards God. And yet, the very fact that we understand that God's people, 1 Corinthians 1 really tells us that God's people are, they are mostly made up of the common people. Uh, they are not, the, they are not the, the elite of the elite often. But also from an economic standpoint. We understand that God's people were considered a threat to everyone who made a living. Think about what happened in Acts chapter number 19 when there was a riot in Ephesus and how Paul had come and started to declare about the, the idols. Remember how he had, he had gone after all the idol makers and those that were making crafts and they were making religious little, uh, little statues to worship. And he came in and, and basically unturned everything upside down and said, listen, uh, these are false. These are not real. Uh, he, was, he was cutting at the very foundation of how they made their living. Christianity was that which called those things superstitions. And you remember Paul asked the question at Mars Hill, I perceive you are too superstitious. And the reality is, is that they were false gods, Right? Many of the more educated Romans believed that what was happening and what was happening to them was a result of their God, the Christian's God. They were angry that their God was taking out on them and was causing all these retaliations, if you will. They didn't like it. So they said, we're going to take care of these Christians and we're going to destroy them. Now, I say all that to say that that was the backdrop of what Christians were dealing with. We find John on this island. Now again, there are a lot of questions as to who banished him here, how he got here, why he was here. And we're not going to deal so much with that tonight, other than we're just going to take it as fact, because the Bible says that he is. 
John says that he is on the isle or in the isle of Patmos for one specific reason. He's in the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why John was there. He was there banished because of his preaching of the word of God and Jesus Christ. This drop, this backdrop, if you will, of Revelation is where we get the comfort that says of the certainty that Jesus Christ and his church will come through victorious, even in the midst of this severe persecution. Now we learned last week, in back in verse number 7, that John said, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Folks, Jesus Christ is certainly coming again. He is coming again. And John is about to give us, and remember we looked even the week before at the doxology that John breaks out into a spirit of worship before he even gets into the persecution, before he ever gets into describing. And he breaks out in doxology and praise because of how grand and how great God is. And, but he introduces us And he tells us again, yes, Christ is coming again. And verse 8, remember, he said, Jesus' words were, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. In our verse tonight, in verse 11, it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. This is all, the entire book of Revelation, remember, is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 tells us that. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And we spent time talking about how most people look at the revelation as just a revelation or the as a book about the end times and how it's all going to go down it's primarily the revelation of Jesus Christ man has argued for centuries over end times what we're supposed to get out of this book is the reality of the revelation of Jesus Christ and what that means for not only this world but what it means for believers what it means for Christianity even in the midst of severe persecution. So when we are tempted, if severe persecution comes to our shores, which it certainly could, and it is creeping closer and closer, we can take comfort in realizing that Jesus Christ has already guaranteed and promised victory over whatever comes. Again, so I don't have to be living in the the deep, because I'm afraid that God is somehow going to lose. John writes praise even in the midst of severe persecution. This Alpha and Omega, this beginning and the ending, the first and the last, this tells us that Jesus Christ himself is declaring that he will be triumphant over all things and in all things. So I want to look at these verses tonight, verses 9 through 11. I want to give us three headings, and these are very simple. There's nothing deep and profound about these. It's just a way to put these thoughts. But in verse 9, the first heading will be, John, the Lord's servant in tribulation. John, the Lord's servant in tribulation. That's verse 9. Verse 10, John in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then the third heading Verse 11, John and the Lord's message to the seven churches. 
Now, we're not going to cover all this tonight, but verses 9 through 20 really is John describing the glorious vision that he has of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is indeed a glorious vision. It is, it is uh, uh, the pinnacle uh, of, of descriptions of the majesty and the preeminence of Christ. So these few verses we'll look at tonight just introduce us to this vision because we're going to see that the very first verses next week, John turns to see the voice. But before we even get there, we see these three verses that set us up for that. So first of all, John, the Lord's servant in tribulation. No doubt John was a servant. John, of course, was an apostle, but he was a servant. He describes himself by his present condition. Now, this is not to be taken metaphorically. John is literally saying his present state and his present condition is that he, as the rest of the true Christians are, is a persecuted man. He is a man who has been banished. He has been sent and confined, most likely because of what it says here, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was in prison for his love for the Lord. John calls himself a brother and a companion. Now, we might think this and take it lightly. John, as an apostle, had an authority that he could have used that authority and said, I, John, as an apostle, command you to do this. He says, no, I'm a brother and a companion. John rests more on his brotherhood with other Christians, then he uses his apostolic authority and says, I'm John, now here's what I'm going to tell you what to do. No, he says, I understand what you're going through. I'm a brother and I'm a companion in this tribulation. John was not just banished and avoided all the persecution. No, he was right in the middle of it. And he says, I'm a companion. I'm your brother. And it's interesting. He says, not only in tribulation, in the kingdom and patience, of Jesus Christ. He was their brother. He seems to value his relation to the church more than his own authority. Now we know that there were apostles, right? We know there were disciples. We know Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' followers, but he was not a brother. He was not a companion. He was not one who would say, I'm your brother and companion in persecution for the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. No, he was a traitor. He was the betrayer of our Lord. Even though it was ordained before the foundation of the world that Judas would be him, Judas would not say that about himself. I'm a brother and a companion. But yet John does. Often that we understand that those who are in the family of God... We choose to be in fellowship and in communion with one another. Companion in tribulation. No saint, no servant of God was suffering alone. They are suffering the same trials. They were, they were seeing things happen to one another. And John says, I know what it is to be afflicted. I know what it is to be persecuted. I know what it is to be in tribulation. I am your brother. I am your companion. But he says, I'm also your companion in the patience 
of Jesus Christ. The patience. This ability to suffer. And to suffer patiently. One of the things I'm always, it's remarkable to me. That every account I've read of believers who have gone through persecution that's either led to very severe persecution with imprisonment or led to death, their final words, is they talk about what I've also often called suffering grace. The ability to endure the persecution. The ability to endure even to the point of death. I believe that's what John had in mind here. This idea that the patience of Jesus Christ, the grace to suffer tribulation and persecution for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now that flies in the face of this watered-down, sugar-coated Christianity today that's being propagated. Because today, I'm not so sure that most who call themselves Christian would even associate as a companion or a brother in tribulation. I think they would flee. I think they would flee like a sinking ship and say, I want no part of this. And John says, no, by the patience of Jesus Christ, he's given us the same suffering grace to endure this persecution. This patience is not just this patience we think about every day. This is a patience that comes as the result of the presence of God. The Spirit of God dwelling within us. The patience to meet our trials. Now folks, I think this, I think this is very real in everyday life as well. Not just severe persecution. The trials that come to your home. The trials that come to your doorstep. You realize that if you're in Christ, if you're in the faith, you are being given suffering graces to endure that trial. It is that hope and that presence of God. It's even as we read in Psalm 77, I cried unto the Lord and I remembered that God is with me. It's the only heads or tails I can make out of these who have gone to the, who've been burned at the stake, those who have been torn asunder, those who have suffered martyrdom. It's the only way when you read their accounts, how they went to wherever their execution was and they did it calmly and they did it with a word of praise on their lips for Christ. That's suffering grace. There, that, folks, that doesn't come from us humanly. That is something that God has to give us And if you don't have it from God, there's no way you could endure what John was talking about. The suffering grace is really an important aspect. It's really something I think we need to think about. And that's what John's talking about here. Companion in patience. He was a sufferer for the cause of Christ. By giving us this account of his present state, he acknowledges that he knows how to and can sympathize with what they're going through. So his counsel and his comfort matters. You think about what John says in 2 Corinthians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that some of the suffering, I'm paraphrasing, that we go through is so that we might be able to comfort someone else. And that we might be able to give them words of comfort. And that's really what's happening here. The island of Patmos. This is the place, he says. This is where the vision comes to him. He doesn't say, he doesn't say who sent him there. He doesn't say specifically how long he's been there. 
But he's been banished, and it says that it was for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was accused, most likely, of being an evildoer. Some society, probably the Romans, said, you're worthy of being an evildoer. But it was a cause worth suffering for, right? So, he tells us the place. He tells us the why. And he tells us when, verse 10. John in the Spirit, specifically he says, on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. It's interesting, John says, I was in the Spirit. Now, these are John's words. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, I was in the Spirit. This has reference to his frame of mind, his spiritual condition. To be in the Spirit doesn't mean that he called the Spirit down and the Spirit indwelled him. He's in the Spirit, the Spirit which already dwells in him. He's in a posture of praise already. That's where the doxology was in those first few verses, the second week in this study. He was in a spirit of praise under the influence, the grace of the Spirit of God. Now, just like I talked about suffering grace, we need to understand about the influence of the Spirit of God on us. You know, there are times, and again, not to get mystical and we're not getting emotional about this, but there are times when God, through the Spirit, gives us very uncommon and unusual manifestations of Himself. In other words, the Spirit is particularly close to us or feels as if the Spirit is moving. I think every believer here knows what I'm talking about. There are times when we just feel as if, through the reading of the Word, that our minds and our, our hearts are set upon Christ and upon God. There are other times we sit and it's as if we're distracted. It's as if the Spirit, although He indwells us, it's as if we cannot, we don't feel His presence. I would say most of the times when you don't feel His presence, it's because our hearts and our minds are distracted from Him. It's not because He's not still great. It's not because He's still not good. It's because our hearts and our minds are distracted but God prepared John. I was in the Spirit. The influences of the Spirit of God. And he says the day and the time. He says it's on the Lord's day. The day which Christ had separated and set apart for Himself. The first day of the week we learned. Sunday to be observed and it was to, to be remembered as a continually, continual reminder of the resurrection of Christ. It's interesting that John makes that distinction. Now again, every word that the, the Bible gives us is important. If God didn't think it was important about the when, then the Bible just would read, I was in the Spirit and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. But specifically, he says what day it was. The Lord's Day. The day set apart for Christians specifically to remember and to worship and especially remember the resurrection of Christ. I think there's something to this. I think there's something to why God's given us this. Those who have communion with God rejoice when we think about the resurrection of Christ. It is the, the pinnacle of understanding that because of the resurrection of Christ, now we have hope. 
Folks, I believe it, it's, it's, it's even meant to give us comfort and hope today. On the Lord's day, the day that is set apart for the resurrection of Christ, John says, I was in the Spirit on that very day. Imagine even on the Lord's day now, the intent is for us to have our minds on God. Not just on Sunday. But seven days a week. But that day's been set apart that our minds should be peculiar on the Lord, particularly set upon Him. Worship in spirit and in truth. And John says, I was in the spirit when I got this vision and it was on the Lord's day. And he heard behind me, it says, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. John gives us an account of what he heard. When? When he was in the Spirit. On what day? The Lord's day. And he doesn't say, I heard a still, small, calm, gentle voice. He said it was like the sound of a trumpet. You see, even modern day Christianity wants to lower and lessen Jesus. Jesus just wants us all to be calm and gentle and he's all loving and there's no... No, his voice was like a trumpet. And he heard it. This wasn't like, what was that? No, he heard this voice and it was like a trumpet. Now, he doesn't identify. He just says, behind me, a great voice. Now, it's not until we get to next week in verse 12 when he says, I turn. He says, I turn and I see the voice, which is an interesting, it's an interesting phrase, right? I see the voice. Normally, you hear the voice. Well, he sees and hears. And that's where the glorious vision begins. So this is introducing us to what John is getting ready to do. He's going to give an account of what he heard when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day while he was banished on the Isle of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And the voice he's going to hear is the voice of Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is no ordinary conversation, and this is no ordinary voice he's going to hear. But again, we want to be very specific. Verse 11 in the third heading, John and the Lord's message to the seven churches. Now here's where I said we cannot get distracted. Specifically, here's what the voice says. I am Alpha and Omega. Now we know this is the voice of Christ. The first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book. Okay, so let's break this down. John is implicitly and directly instructed. Whatever you see, I want you to write it in a book. Now, not just write it in general, but write it in a book and then send it. Send what you see to specifically these seven churches. So the declaration by Christ here as Alpha and Omega is Christ himself applying to himself the character of being God, being the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. He is before he even says anything else, he says, I'm Alpha and Omega, I'm God. Commanding John to write. 
write what's going to be revealed to you. Send it to the seven churches, which by the way, all these churches would be, would be classified as what's called seven Asian churches. We'll learn more about that when we get to those churches. But those specific churches are mentioned. So John has been given these instructions. This is what I want you to do, and here's where I want you to send it. So here's Christ himself, described throughout the scriptures as being the author and the finisher of our faith, the captain of our salvation, gives John notice that what I'm getting ready to say, I want you to write it down. Now, John doesn't fully understand what he's getting ready to see. Because when John, when we get further in this and we begin to see John's description of Christ, he talks about his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as he burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He has in his right hand seven stars and in his mouth out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shineth in strength. And the response we'll see of John is, I fell at his feet as dead. Imagine if us as churches today actually visually understood who Christ really is. Just that description. Just the way that he describes the voice. In the whole affair of salvation, it is Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Remember, John last week, or even the previous week, had announced in verse 5 that from Jesus Christ, who is faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This Alpha and Omega is not just a general first and last beginning and ending. It also refers to our salvation. Christ is the beginning and the ending. He's the first and the last, even with regard to the entirety of our salvation. Verse 5 really describes the work. And John ascribes the entirety of salvation. He loved us, washed us, from our sins and His own blood. When did Christ love His people? From the very beginning. He redeemed us in due time. He redeemed us at the appointed hour. Christ is the one, folks, who is coming for us in the end. Not some random angel, not some random saint. Jesus Christ Himself is the one who's coming for us. Now that's a glorious promise. The very Christ who is the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega of our salvation is the one that's coming for His bride. He's the one that's coming for His people. Christ is the Alpha and Omega because He called us from death unto life by the power of His Spirit. It is Christ who at the last day will present all of His people, all of His elect, before God the Father. He will present them holy and blameless and unreprovable. And the reason they'll be holy and blameless and unreprovable is by the merits of His own blood. That's why we're going to be able to stand before God 
So he's not only the beginning and the first, he is also the omega. He is the ending of it. Christ is everything in between. He holds our very life by the power of His grace. Christ saved us spiritually, saved us by His grace, and He is the one that will hold us even in this physical life. One day, He's going to bring us unto Himself. Folks, you realize we are in His hands, safe and secure. And nothing, nobody, and no one can separate us. Do you imagine those Christians when they were going through that severe persecution, you imagine there were times when maybe entered into their mind and their heart, has God forsaken us? We didn't read it, but in that Psalm 77, one of the other questions that the psalmist says, has God forgotten to be gracious? Listen, trials, persecution, suffering, discouragements, troubles will lead us often to forget that we are safe and secure in Christ's hands. And sometimes we forget that. We think, Lord, don't you see my persecution? Don't you see the trouble? Don't you see the struggle? Don't you see the sorrow? If you're one of His, He has seen it all. And you take comfort in realizing He's the one that saved you by His grace. He's the one that's keeping you by His grace. And He's the one that's coming back for you personally to come and take you with Him. I don't have to look for something else. Imagine, even as Jesus said in John 10, He cannot for any reason, for any purpose, and for any price, let us go. Folks, that's real security. That's real assurance. Listen, even earthly relationships, many of them fail, right? They fail. What we think is secure and we think is certain and sure falls apart. It fails. The security we have in Christ doesn't fail. I am as safe in Christ right now as I was at the time when He saved me, and I will be just as secure in Christ when He comes to get me. He's, everything is in His hands. Every child of God ought to remember that we can not only depend upon Christ, but we can lean upon Christ when the weight of the world is piled on top of us. And if it comes in our lifetime, if persecution comes like it came to John and his companions, we don't lean on our own strength. We lean on the power of Christ. Folks, this is not just this casual casting myself upon the Lord. There's an entirety here. When John, and we'll, when we get to this, when he saw this glorious appearance and vision of Christ, he fell on his feet, fell at his feet as dead. And I love this. And he, Jesus, laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, now this is verse 17, he says it again, fear not, I am the first and the last. 
Do you know what title, what description, what phrase was bringing comfort to John? I am Alpha and Omega. You know what's going to bring great comfort to you? Not whether the world gets better tomorrow. Not whether or not you wake up and politically something has changed. Socially it's changed. Economically it's changed. None of those things matter. What matters is Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. My entire salvation belongs to Him. I am totally, entirely in His hands. And I'm thankful these weak hands of mine have no part in holding me in His kingdom because they would never hold Do you realize what Jesus was telling John? Do you realize the appearance that he saw? Philippians 1.6 reminds us that he, Christ, who began a good work in you, he will finish that work. He who called you is going to keep you. Christ never says, I'm Alpha, but I'm not Omega. And he never says, I'm Omega, but I'm not Alpha. He says, I am Alpha and Omega. And that matters. Imagine if Christ was just the beginning, but the ending was left up to us. Imagine if he was only the ending and the beginning was left up to us. No, he says, I'm the entirety of it. It was the great comfort of John. that even though the world said, you're an evildoer. He says, I don't consider it suffering to be banished for the testimony of Christ. I don't consider it suffering to be banished for the Word of God. Why? Because he knew Him. Folks, the reason why when persecution comes, people flee is because they don't know Him. They don't know Him. And that's why I say we better be very careful Talking boldly and talking big and saying when persecution comes, I have the grace to withstand it. You're not going to know until it comes. Now our prayer is is that we do have it and we would respond this way. But understand something, John knew what it was. Again, we are experiencing some persecution in this country. It It would be foolish of me to say that we're not experiencing some. But I'm not sure it's at the level where we would flee from it yet. But what if? John acknowledges that he was in the Spirit. He acknowledges that he knew Christ. That sound of the voice with a trumpet announced the voice of Christ that he's going to hear. Verse 12, when we begin next week, we then now have an account of exactly what he saw. He turns, he sees the voice, he sees who it's coming from, he sees where it's coming from, and then what might be one of the most glorious appearances of Christ that's ever been recorded in Scripture is revealed to John right here in the first chapter of this epistle. And we're going to look at that vision next week. So I'd encourage you, if you like to read ahead, I'd always encourage you to do that. Prepare for next week. Is read, begin in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. And just 
even pray on and meditate upon what John actually saw, what John response, which John's response was, what Jesus says again and again and again about why John could be comforted even during this very trying time that John was going through. Folks, I'm very glad tonight to be able to say that I know Christ is the Alpha and Omega and I know him as my Savior. And that I, ha- I have certainty that Christ has saved me. Not because of what I've done, like we sang, not because of what my hands can do, but because of what Christ has done. I'm in his hands entirely from beginning to ending. Christ is my all in all. And I hope we'll think on these truths. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word tonight. And Lord, I'm amazed as I have been numerous times reading this opening chapter of the glory of Christ being so clearly revealed so soon into this book. Lord, without a doubt, it sets our minds and our hearts of where we're to find our comfort, of where we're to find our strength, and where we're going to receive that suffering grace. Lord, I pray that we do not miss the message of Revelation. Lord, I pray that throughout this study that we we learn together and we see these great truths, but yet we reach the end and we miss the revelation of Christ. Lord, I pray that that would not be the case. Lord, and if there be anyone even in this building or those that are listening by live stream tonight, Lord, that have not repented of their sins, they've not believed in Christ alone for their saving, for salvation, Lord, I pray, Lord, that according to your perfect will, if it be your will for them, that their eyes would be open to see these great truths, that they would see their sin for what it is, that their ears would be open to the truth, and they would be made willing to believe in this day. Father, thank you for what you've done in the life of your people. And Lord, I truly pray and hope that we leave here tonight comforted, knowing that no matter what comes to us personally or what comes to this nation, what comes to this world, that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. And we praise you and thank you for that. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.